Well, church family, if you have your copy of God's word, let me invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter two. And uh, this morning we will look at verses one through 14. I told my wife last night, as I usually do on Saturdays, that I feel like I may have bitten off more than I can chew and uh, was thinking about skipping over a few of these verses. Uh, In particular, uh, the very beginning, verses one through four, that focus on drifting away. Uh, She emphatically said, don't you dare uh, skip over verse one of Hebrews two. And so I'm here this morning as a submissive husband uh, before you listening to my wife, and uh, we will attempt to walk through all 14 of these verses. So read with me as we read just the first three verses this morning as we begin our text. And the word of God says this, therefore, we must pay close, closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Pray with me. Father, we pray now that you would inhabit our thoughts, our heart's affection as we focus on you and the word that you have given us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. One of the things that we see in chapter one that we've seen over the previous weeks that the message that God has given is clear. God has spoken to us by his son and his son is not just any son, his son is the creator of all things. His son Jesus is the sustainer of all things, the owner of all things, the ruler of all things, the redeemer of all things. Things. And in chapter one, what we find are no commands or platitudes that are given to the believer. No, do this and don't do that. Explicitly, what we see in chapter one is God proclaiming precisely this fact that this is who I am, and this is how great and this is how glorious I am. No commands, only a declaration, only a celebration, if you will, of the greatness of Jesus who has been declared the ultimate and the final word. And then in chapter two, we begin to see a transition. God moving beyond just declaring who he is and now he begins to give the believer or the church, if you will, he begins to give us commands. He begins to give us admonitions and and warnings as his people. He begins to remind us and, and tell us that there is something that we must do. And we see this in the beginning of the text and the ESV translation, which says, therefore, some translations say, for all of these reasons. And in other words, chapter two begins by telling us our duty and obligation as believers because chapter one lays forth how great and glorious he actually is. I think this is a, a blueprint for all of spiritual formation. I think there's intentionality in in the structure of the beginning of Hebrews, that he would start with, with his character, he would start with who he is in our lives and how wonderful he is in our lives and how glorious he is in our lives before he would ever tell us what we are to do. That we would become, as as his people, so enamored with who he is that we would become so infatuated and and so much in a sense of all of of how grand and how glorious he is and that out of that understanding, 
out of that overflow of his attribute, out of that overflow of his character and his nature, then it would compel us and it would move us to be a people that live on mission. In other words, because God has spoken by his son in these last days, because he has revealed himself as creator and sustainer and owner and ruler and redeemer of the world above all the angels, above all other created things, therefore, verse one, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That we must look carefully that we must examine because of who he is, that, that we must listen, that we must pay attention, that we must put our eyes and, and our gaze upon him. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. What he is saying to the church in just these few words, in just this one verse, is he is saying, church, listen to what I say. Listen to what I have declared. Listen to what I have revealed. This command is something that we desperately today in this moment and in this hour that we need to hear. The word of God simply saying to his people, listen to me. And I simply come before you humbly this morning asking myself this same question. What is it that I have been listening to for my days? What have I been paying attention to this past week? What do you listen to? To whom do you listen to? In other words, what God has spoken in his word, he has revealed himself through his word. He has revealed himself through his son. And the question before the church today is, friend and brother and sister, are you listening to him? And therefore, how does your listening to him compared to the other things in your life that might be jockeying for your attention that you might be listening to in spite of him. The things that perhaps you have focused on, the things that perhaps you have looked to, the worry and the doubt and the fear and the, and the ways of the world and the cultural moment of this day, the things that you listen to in radio and television, the things that you listen to in your car, the things that you listen to in the, in the recesses of your headspace, what are you listening to, friend? The writer of Hebrews just simply says and gently calls the church back and he says, therefore, if Jesus is who he says he is and God is who he proclaims to be, therefore, listen to him. And on and on it goes in our life. What we will see throughout the book of Hebrews that this command to pay much closer attention to, to, to listen to what you have heard is a command that we will see all throughout the book of Hebrews. It will come over and over and over again. We, we will see this in chapter three where he says, therefore, holy brethren, partaker of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus to listen to him, to consider him, to focus on him, to stay close to him and, and to keep him near to your thoughts, to keep him near to your heart. We see this in Hebrews 12 where he goes on and he, and he says, therefore let us run the, with endurance the race that is set before us and let us fix our eyes on Jesus. To watch him, to consider him, to listen to him. 
I find it interesting that in the beginning of this book, the first command of this book is not to labor for Jesus, but rather to listen to Jesus. To not labor for him and, and do works for him, but, but rather just to, just to hear him and, and to listen to him and to understand him. I think the world and the churches are, are full of people often that, that do things for Jesus, but don't listen to things that he has spoken of and that he has said. They were good about getting caught up and, and raptured, if you will, in the, in the moment of the cultural Christianity that exists, oftentimes deep within the recesses of our hearts. And, and it is easy, more often than not, to do things for Jesus rather than to, to sit at his feet and, and to listen to him and to, and to understand him and to actually be changed by the things that he has said. The first command of this book that exists is not do anything for Jesus except that you would just sit and that you would just listen. In other words, he's not commanding us to work for him, but rather he's commanding us to simply just watch him, to examine him, to know him, to be with him. What we say in Southern Baptist vernacular or within evangelicalism, as we would just simply put it this way, what, what he's calling us to do is to be in union with him or to be in relationship with him, to fellowship with him, to talk to him and to let him talk to us through his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit for him to impress upon our hearts as we walk with him and seek to be faithful to him and all the things that he has called us to do. Friend, the first and foremost thing that he has called you to do today is simply to just sit at his feet and, and just listen to him, to look at him and to know him. Before you go about your day and before you go about your duties that he has assigned you and that he has given you, before you go about the tasks that are before you, the writer of Hebrews simply says, therefore, pay attention to him. Look at him and, and examine him, watch him and, and be with him, be in union with him, walk in fellowship with him, be in relationship with him. Why is this so important? Why is he so emphatic in this moment? Well, the, the reason comes at the end of verse one. Therefore, because of who he is, you, you look at him, you, you pay attention to him, to what you have heard. Why? Because the warning is, lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. And what the writer is doing in this just one verse is he is making a correlation and causation within your life and my life that if I'm not looking at him, if I'm not examining him, if I'm not listening to him, if I'm not humbling myself before him, then the warning here in this moment is that, that I would drift. That I would drift away from him. I've said this to you before and I'll, I'll say it again. We... We don't accidentally grow in godliness towards Christ. We don't accidentally drift in becoming like Jesus. The way that we become like Jesus, the way that we become like Christ is that we are intentional with our thoughts and, and with our time and, and with the things that we look at and the things that we examine. Do you know that within this world, the way that your heart has been wired and that it has been geared is that the things that you look at the most are the things that you will more often become. 
The things that you examine within your own life, these are the things that you will be pulled towards and these were the things that, that you will gravitate towards. We, we do not accidentally drift into godliness. No, the way that we become like Christ is with intentionality, that we examine Christ and we know Christ and we walk with Christ lest we drift away. And if we consider just for a moment this word drifting, it means, as one theologian aptly put it, it means simply to just float by. It's this picture of you coming before a river in a, in a stream. And you look into that river or you look into that stream and, and you see that, that piece of wood or that branch that has fallen into the water and you, and you see that branch, it, it just floats by, it just drifts by with, with no real purpose, no real goal, no real aim. It's that picture of something floating by and, and we know that as it floats, it floats downstream, it doesn't float upstream. In my lifetime, which is much shorter than many of yours, only 40 years old, I, I have never in my life ever, under any circumstance, seen anything ever intentionally float upstream by itself. Things always flow downstream. And friends, this is the, the way of the world. It's the, it's the day in which we live in that, that our world is slowly flowing downstream. It deteriorates and, and we see the, the evil and the injustice. We see the sin that is so prevalent within our world. Things do not by design flow upstream. It has no life. It has no motion. And so the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, because of who Jesus is, pay close attention to him, lest you and lest me drift away. The point is that in this moment, there is no standing still. There are no such things in the world of following Christ as idle hands. There is no such thing as a pause or, or a timeout. There is no such thing as a, as a rest, that we're always moving in one direction or another. Therefore, fix your eyes on him. Listen to him and do what he says. This morning, you perhaps might find yourself in a place of, of drifting. You found yourself in a place where your eyes and your attention, your heart's affection is not on him. And so the writer of Hebrews gently calls the church, he gently calls you and I back to this place where, where we say, I need to get my, my attention back on him. And the thing that we can take comfort in, because everyone in this room and watching around the world, all of us at times, we, we put our eyes on the wrong things. We focus on the wrong things. We, we look at the wrong things. We do at the wrong things. We, our heart becomes consumed by the wrong things. But, but, but for the power and the glory of God and his spirit that exists within our hearts, that exists within our lives, at some point over the course of, of that season, he begins to, to gently prick our, our hearts and he begins to make us uncomfortable with what it is that we're wandering to and, and drifting towards. And, and God in his sovereignty, God in his mercy, he begins to pull us back. He begins to bring us back. And he begins to remind us in those moments that those things that we are drifting to are not worthy of the time and the affection and the attention that our hearts so often 
give it. He goes on in verse five and he says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and he quotes the psalmist in saying, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he has left nothing outside of his control. This is a pretty amazing thought in this moment as he quotes a psalm that, that really and truly in its essence is a messianic psalm, but the reality is it, it speaks to the posture of the believer. That we are in, in one sense eventually to be higher in privilege. We are to be higher in position and glory than, than even the angels that we, we talked about last week that he spoke, that he spoke about. Whenever an angel often shows up in scripture, they, they are these glorious and, and beautiful beings, but at the same time, they, they are terrifying. And so when they appear, oftentimes to, to mere mortal men and, and women, the, the text says they, they see the angel and they are afraid and the angel proclaims and he says, therefore do not fear. But the promise in that text is that someday, because God was mindful of man, that he cares for man, he makes us a little lower than the angels and crowns us with a little bit of glory and a little bit of honor, but then one day he will put those beings in subjection to our feet. I find this humorous for a moment and seeing these Renaissance paintings, if you will, and looking at angels and how they're often portrayed and, and looked at and we see them as these very angelic, beautiful things to, to be able to look at. If you were to look to the person to your right, look to the person to your right. If you were to look to the, to the person to your left, look to your left. If you were to look to the person behind you and, and the person in front of you, what we will see is that one day, they, that person that stands or sits before you to the right and to the left, to the front of you and to behind you will be more beautiful to behold than the very angels that are described within the word of God. And for some of you, that's a long ways to go. I was told many years ago that you can't fix ugly. I was told that. But the reality, according to the word of God, in the word of God, is that he, he promises us just the opposite, that he, that he will fix those things. But when he quotes this psalm, he, he's not in particular just talking about you and me, but rather he gives what's known as a messianic psalm. And that ultimately the writer of Hebrews is talking about our savior that we sing about today, the, the Jesus that we worship, that we understand, that who is the radiance of the glory of God. He, he is above all of those things, yet he humbles himself just for a little while. And he conquers sin, death, and evil on the cross. And he rises up on the third day. And in 40 days, he, he ascends into the heavens. And, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he reigns over the universe supremely. He rules over all things so that not one thing or event or circumstance in your life, in my life, or around the world has caught him by surprise. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has defeated evil. And someday this Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back for his church and he's coming back to make all rights wrong and to help us understand exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. 
But in verse eight, the text says this. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. The question that I wrestled with all week is, is all creation really subject to him? Is he really in this moment? Is he, is he really in control of it all? In the past century alone, we've seen 100 million people die of unnatural causes apart from war or disease or natural disaster. That means over 100 million people have died because of crime of of some sort, according to sociologists, genocide, or according to starvation. We see on the news how, how fragile the world actually is and we see people perish day in and day out and so we come along with our solutions. And we argue in the, in the political spectrum with world leaders, this is what we should do and this is what we should not do. And, and all the while, we, we recognize that in this moment, we ask the question legitimately, is he actually in control of all the chaos that we see around the world? We do not see everything in subjection to him at times, and this creates a problem for us oftentimes. And so what the writer of Hebrews rightfully does is he says, well, listen, we recognize the fallenness and the sin that exists within this world. And so he says, let me paint you a picture just for a moment of of who this Jesus is. As if I needed to say anything else after Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, let me paint this picture of of who he is in the midst of all of this. We we see beginning in verse 9, the beginning of, of these first of these four pictures, we see a king who tasted death. Verse nine says, but we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, who was crowned with glory, who was crowned with honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. A king who tasted death for you and me crowned with glory, crowned with honor, this Jesus who gets involved in the ways of the world and offers himself up so that you and I could be reconciled to God. One pastor described this text this way in telling the story of 1964 of a young lady by the name of Kitty Genova in Manhattan, New York. A mugger came up to her one evening in 1964 and he began to stab her. She began to scream and she began to cry, oh my God, someone has stabbed me. Someone please come and help. And so people turned on the lights in their apartments and they began to look out the windows and they began to watch as as this mugger began to stab Kitty. But the tragedy of the story is Not one of the people who watched the mugger commit the assault on her intervened and got involved to help. And so the mugger, seeing this, after hearing the cries, as she finds her way crawling to a backside of an alley, bleeding out, the mugger, who had left prior to that, he comes back to the alley and he finishes the job. And he eventually ends up taking Kitty's life. And he robbed her for $49 from her purse and a couple other personal belongings. When the police eventually got involved, they began to to document that over 37 different people witnessed the murder. 37 people watched the injustice. They they watched the murder. They, They watched the atrocity. Yet 
Yet 37 people did nothing, did not get involved. And so therefore, this lady lost her life. Friend, I'm telling you today that our King Jesus doesn't just hear the cries of his people, doesn't just turn on the lights to examine the injustice that's before us, doesn't just scream out and cry, oh God, help me. No, this, this Jesus that we worship this morning, this Jesus that we adore this morning, he did something about it. He got involved with, with what was going on. He, he took the initiative at the risk and the cost of his, of his own life. He, he tasted death for everyone. And the truth is, it wasn't just that we were innocent bystanders standing by. We, we were guilty and we were worthy of the death that we should have received and yet he took our punishment upon him. Not only do we see this Jesus as king, but we also see him as victor in verse 10. He says in verse 10, for it was fitting that this Jesus, that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. If you jump down to verses 14 and 15, he says, since therefore the children share in the flesh and the blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Some translations, verse 10 and verses 14 and 15, go together to make this point. Some translations render that phrase founder there in verse 10. They'll render it champion. Or they'll render it deliverer. Jesus, the, the champion of our faith. Jesus, the deliverer of our faith. We, we see this best told in the Old Testament story of David defeating Goliath. David was the champion. He was the deliverer in that moment and taking something that, that almost seemed absurd to slay the giant. David comes and, and he delivers his people. This Jesus should make the founder of their salvation, the, the pioneer of their salvation, the deliverer of their salvation. So that in verse 15, he would deliver all those who fear death. All those who were consumed by death, who were captivated by death. He delivers them from those things. And not just death, mind you. But this Jesus who comes along, he delivers us not just from death to give us eternal life, but he, but he comes and delivers us in places of fear and hopelessness and he gives us hope and he gives us purpose. He gives us a reason. He, he restores us to him. He, he makes wronged relationships right. He restores broken marriages. He, he redeems the conflict. He, he reconciles those things. When we are unhappy, he is the one that makes us content. When we are desperate, he is the one that makes us feel safe. When we are panicked, he is the one that comes and brings us great comfort. He is all of those things. He will deliver us from the fear of death, which were subject to lifelong slavery. I think even more so than that, verses 10 and verse 14 and 15, it, it teaches us that in the midst of his deliverance, the things that we feel like in this life that we miss out on, the things in this life that we feel like perhaps we were owed at times, at some point in 
in heaven, in, uh, in that eternal state, we will experience in the fullness. To, to put it another way, anything you missed out on this life will be experienced in all of its fullness in the next life. In any way that you feel like you were shortchanged because of who Jesus is, he will make up for it in the next, that it is far greater and better in the next life than it ever will be in this life, no matter how great your life this side of the cross is. But he goes on and we see not just the fact that he is our victor and our king, but we see that he is our family and he is unashamed. Verse 13, the text says, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The family that you and I belong to as children of God. That it is far better and it is far greater than any family God would offer us. And if you would think with me just ever so briefly and just for a moment about the genealogy of Jesus being called in and grafted in him through salvation into his family. Yet, yet when you think about Jesus' family, you think about how dysfunctional that family actually is. I don't know if, if you have any family members in your family, none that you would publicly admit that maybe you're a little embarrassed of or you're a little ashamed of or, or they've sort of gotten a little wayward, if you will, and, and walked away. But consider this. Within the genealogy of Jesus was Rahab, who was a prostitute. Our mothers who were unwed and yet gave birth to children was a, a young lady who was assaulted by her uncle, was David's illegitimate son born out of adultery. People who, who over and over failed themselves over and over again and embarrassed themselves, yet these were people that were included in the genealogy of Jesus and he was not ashamed. And they were family. And I think briefly the point there in that moment is not, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have said, no matter what you have gone through, Jesus today, if you're a part of his family, he is, he is not ashamed of you. And finally, in concluding, we see this priest who provides, and I wanna draw your attention to verse 17 quickly where he says this, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of God of his people. Very briefly, what that word propitiation means, one of the most important words in all of the New Testament. To make propitiation means to avert the wrath of God by the offering of another gift. That the wrath of God was, was due upon you and me and that that wrath had been averted through the sacrifice of Jesus. That he absorbed that wrath so that God would, would take out his wrath on his son so that it would not be taken out upon you and me, even though our God that we worship today is a God of infinite love. He does not show mercy at the expense of his justice. His justice will always be satisfied. His justice has been satisfied through his son, Jesus. That he doesn't stop being a just God, but rather he satisfies that justice through Christ. So in this moment, in this hour, anyone who would call upon his name would be saved. Anyone that would believe in their hearts that Christ is who he says he is, that he rose up on the third day, that he's redeemed us of our sins. Anyone who would just simply say in the seat in which they sit, God, would you, would you save me from my sins, would be saved. 
just like I was when I was 17 years old and I called upon the name of the Lord and I knew that I, I needed a savior, that I knew that my sin had separated me from God, that anyone who would call upon his name today in this moment would be saved. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are good and kind. You have spoken to us in these last days through your son whom you have appointed the heir of all things. The son to whom you, through whom you created the world, who you describe in your word as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of your nature so that if we want to know you, we must know your son. So Father, I pray that today, therefore, that we would look at him I pray that today, therefore, we would pay much closer attention to him as we look at your word and as we humble ourselves before it. Father, would you help us see him as he truly is? Would you help us know him as he is? And would you let that be the source of our comfort this morning and this time and this hour for we pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.